what happens to social coordination when we not only cannot agree on the labels, but labeling itself becomes weaponized as simply a rhetorical act? Do you believe Orwell is right about there being a direct link between the height of our language and the height of our thoughts? Welcome to The Neutral Ground. This week, our guest is Dr. Nick Enfield. Nick is a professor in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Sydney. He's also the director of the Sydney Social Sciences and Humanities Advanced Research Center. We're going to be talking quite a bit today about his brand new book, Language versus Reality, Why Language is Good for Lawyers and Bad for Scientists. We discuss the role that language plays in social coordination, how the way we frame an object or idea is a rhetorical act, and why it's so difficult for us to explain an event that occurs right in front of our eyes. For example, at one point in our discussion, Dr. Enfield's screen just freezes. So if you're watching this on YouTube or on Spotify, it's not your reality that's broken. It's just a good old-fashioned technical difficulty. Now, we get into some pretty deep topics here that just might blow your mind. So while you're still cognizant of reality, hit the subscribe slash follow button to help support the podcast. And now here's my conversation with Dr. Nick Enfield. Nick, welcome to The Neutral Ground. How are you doing today? Pretty well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. I'm excited for this. Well, we're, we're going to be talking quite a bit about your book, Language versus Reality, Why Language is Good for Lawyers and Bad for Scientists. But I actually would like to begin with a little bit about you and, and your background here. How did you get into the field of linguistics? Was it something you were always fascinated with? Yeah, I think I probably was always fascinated with languages. Um, so, you know, there are plenty of languages spoken around us in Australia, um, and I guess everywhere in the world has a lot of languages spoken, um, but certainly growing up in urban environments in Australia, very many people around speaking different languages. And uh, I guess I was always fascinated with other countries and other cultures and language was one of the best ways to to get into those other worlds uh i did a kind of backpacking tour after i got out of high school um went to many countries and i found that the thing that really kind of gave me something interesting to do through the day was learning languages spoken by the people around me. And at the time, I didn't really understand that much about human language as a thing. Uh, but, you know, individual languages were just this fun, exciting thing to, to engage with. Uh, gave you a way to connect with people, gave you access to the world around you in, in some sense. So, um, yeah, I think always deep down, I had a an interest in in languages, but also I think in kind of originally I was into mathematics and and sort of more technical stuff, and that has you know I think a lot of people who are into linguistics find a way in through that through things like math or music 
um, where, you know, language has these kind of technical structural properties to it that, that attract people. So for me, it was a combination between the kind of nerdy, geeky kind of aspects of language structure on the one hand and the kind of much more cultural uh, aspects of kind of using language on the other. When you went on your, your trip and you were immersed in these languages and learning all about them, was there a particular language that really kind of called to you that made you excited to learn about this, learn more about other languages? Yeah, I guess there was. So in so this was the late 80s. I took uh, a trip to, as I said, many countries, but it started as many Australians would start um, in Southeast Asia, and I traveled in various countries there. Uh, Thailand is a country where I spent quite a long time at that period and you know it's a very accessible country and a very welcoming country and the kind of place where you could travel around and just speak a little bit but still be you know praised by people for your skills and uh you know it just kind of gives you a, a fun point of access and uh so i found it very encouraging to to, to learn thai um but what i quickly learned about the Thai language and about Thailand was that there's a, a very large part of the country is in fact ethnically Lao. So Laos is the country that is spoken uh, next door to Thailand, so on the opposite bank of the Mekong River. Um, and many people, millions in fact, uh, who live in Thailand are speakers of Lao, which is essentially, you know, Thai and Lao are kind of like dialects to their their that can be understood by each other to, to a large extent. In any case, I spent a lot more of my time in that Lao-speaking area of, of Thailand, and I just became fascinated by, by the Lao language, by the Lao culture, and uh, I visited some spots along the border during that trip, and um, one thing led to another, and once I got back to Australia and got into kind of undergrad university research, I, I just was kind of fascinated and ultimately went back uh, and spent a lot of time in Laos over the years. And that's become the area where I've really specialized. So the Lao language is uh, a major specialty of mine, but also other languages that are spoken in Laos. Let me ask one, one more question here then, because I'm just always fascinated by professionalism in general and, and professionalizing in something. What is one particular aspect of the Lao language then, or the language of that area, that is particularly unique to it? Yeah, that's um, it's an interesting question. It all depends, I think, on your perspective. So every language is unique in some sense. Uh, you know, every language has its own kind of curiosities um, have their own ways of being written down. If they are written, they have oftentimes, well, pretty much any language will have words that are unique to it and expressions that are unique to it and sounds that are unique to it. At the same time, every language deep down is a manifestation of this same universal human trait. Uh, so I think what's fascinating about 
Lao is the same thing that's fascinating about any language is what is the balance between the elements of the language that are that are basically human that any language would have to have uh, functions that it kind of has to serve given that it's used as a tool for social life on on the one hand and on the other hand the specific flavor that it has that relates to social life and cultural life in Laos. So to, to your question, I suppose one striking aspect of the language that is quite reflective of social life is the, the pronoun system. Uh, you know, so pronouns nowadays, there's a lot of discourse around pronouns and people are concerned about pronouns and they mean things like he, she, uh, you know, they, him, and so on. Um, and when people are talking about pronouns in English, they're fixating on uh, gender marking, so masculine versus feminine versus some kind of neutral form. Uh, the Lao language, like other languages in that part of the world, has a far more elaborated pronoun system than English does, uh, or even than a European language like French or, or German, there are distinctions in, I mean, gender or sex are not really what's interesting about these systems. What's interesting about these systems is the levels of politeness or informality. So, you know, people who learn French will learn that you have to have two ways of saying, you know, in English, we just say you, there's no uh, gender distinction, but there's also no politeness distinction. Whereas in in French and other European languages, you have to learn. Okay, there are these two words. There's two, and there's vous, and one of them's kind of familiar and uh, or perhaps impolite in some contexts, and the other one is more, you know, distant or more formal. Uh, but that's just one little opposition in the system. One little choice that you sometimes have to make. Um, whereas in the Lao language instead of having two choices, you have at least four choices of kind of politeness level. And not only that, it's not just in the words that refer to you. So it's not just in the second person, but it's also in the first person. So there are different levels of uh, word that you would select to refer to yourself. So, you know, in English, no one argues about the first person pronoun. Everyone just says I or me. Um, whereas in in Lao, you have to navigate the choice of different words that would be translated as I or me. And it all depends on the context, who you're speaking to, uh, you know, what's the level of formality, whether this interaction is going well, or you're trying to express displeasure, all sorts of kind of social factors mean that, uh, you know, navigating the pronoun system is requires a certain kind of delicacy that you know, it makes English look absolutely primitive. <laughs> that is actually really fascinating. Uh, thank you for that. That's wonderful. And, and it serves as a great kind of a primer into or a segue into your, your book here as well. I, I'm curious. It's such a striking title, Language Versus Reality, right? And, and even adding the subtitle here, Why Language is Good for Lawyers and Bad for Scientists. I, I'd like to know what, what was the genesis for this study? So for a long time, I've been involved in a lot of projects 
with colleagues in in language research. So I've been fortunate to be engaged in team research, working on languages from around the world and 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 kind of comparing them to try to get at uh, the tension that I was mentioning earlier, this tension between what's universal uh, across languages versus uh, you know what is uh, what's able to vary across languages. and And when you pose that question, you can test really quite diverse things in in languages. So one of the things you can test is the meanings of words um, and specifically, you know, what kinds of things to words refer to. So a simple example would be something like uh, colour. You know, so in English we have these word, basic words for colours like yellow, red, blue, green, but another language will have uh, other words and they might sort of carve up the colour space in a different way. So an example of that would be that we have two separate words, blue and green, um, whereas in the Lao language, you can express those, but basically people use this one word, kiao, which could refer to blue or green. It's a kind of broader category. So there's a bit of interesting confusion there. So you can study that question, and I have with colleagues uh, studied that question in relation to a whole range of different domains. So not just color, but things like, you know, what sorts of labels do languages give to parts of the body and what sorts of labels do languages give to uh, actions that you might perform. Um, and you see interesting variation. That work has been, a, you know, been a lot of projects I've been involved in in that line of work. And what's common to that line of work is uh, what is often called reference in language. So that simply means uh using language to refer to things in the world, you know, uh, states of affairs that you can measure or photograph or test like uh, colours and so forth, as I've, as I've just said. So that's one sort of whole line of work that I got involved in. Um, and sort of in parallel with that, I've done a lot of work over the years on a, on a quite different line of work, which is about how people interact using language, the dynamics of human interaction. So if you look at uh, not what people are talking about, but how they're talking, you can measure things like, you know, what is the, the mechanism they use to alternate when they're doing turn-taking in a conversation? Or if something hasn't been heard correctly or they've misunderstood a word or haven't uh, caught what someone said, you know, how do they signal that they, that this needs to be repeated? How can you sort of repair uh, errors during the course of conversation? So I've been involved also in a lot of work about the structure of, of conversation and my previous book, How We Talk, which was published in 2017, was really focusing on, on that conversational kind of domain of language. So those two lines of work are really Oftentimes in linguistics, people will treat them as two completely unrelated sort of fields of linguistic research. One is, you know, semantics and, and how the world uh, is linked to language. And the other is what's sometimes called pragmatics, you know, how people use language. And I've now to answer your question, um, this project uh, in, in, the, in the current book is really about reconciling the things that I've learned in those two 
major projects. And basically, you know, the bottom line is um, that when you're trying to capture the reality of the world using the words of language, we can only do so much. Language is really rather blunt as an instrument for capturing experience, uh, which, you know, shouldn't be that surprising to anybody, but, but still we actually tend to take it as being a very accurate uh, way of portraying reality. But in fact, it's, it, it's really not. It's an extremely blunt instrument. Um, somehow that has to be related to the fact that on the interactional side, on the, the side of, you know, how we use language in social interaction, language seems to be excellent for that purpose. It seems to be really sort of well-oiled for that purpose and uh, much better for persuasion and social coordination and those kinds of functions than it is for kind of accurately capturing the truth. And so it was really sort of thinking through the relation between those two big lines of work that I've been involved in, you know, for a couple of decades now that really made me want to uh, write this book. And, um, you know, it's that kind of distinction is what underlies the main title of the book, Language Versus Reality. Something that I love about this book particularly is you, there's clearly wrestling going on here. You're, you're grappling with a lot of different, incredibly complex topics. And you do a, a fantastic job of, of getting those kind of wrestling matches across in a palatable way, I think, as well. And so let's, let's actually dive into some of these a little bit here. You, you tackle the relationship right at the beginning between reality, truth, and language. And you don't try to force them to play well together, which I appreciate. You essentially say in the book, or you acknowledge that there are two realities, brute and social. Brute realities, things like gravity, for example, are not subject to our discussions of them, right? If something is falling, my discussion of that object is not gonna stop it from falling. However, social realities, such as laws, ethics, culture, can only exist through language by a means that you call, and you mentioned this just before, social coordination. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between social coordination and reality? Yeah, sure. That's an important distinction that you've picked up on there. And it really comes out of reasoning by the philosopher John Searle, who has for quite a long time really kind of emphasized this point that, that there are two kinds of reality. And, and an example would be something like, you know, driving a car. So either I can operate a car or I can't. It's a matter of reality. So I, you know, I happen to uh, know how to drive a car and you could see me do that and you would have to admit that, yes, it's true. I can, I can drive a car. That's a matter of physical kind of possibility. And it wouldn't matter, you know, what you said about it. It wouldn't change me having that physical capability. Um, there's a different question, which is whether I'm licensed to drive a car. And that is a matter of a social reality, as, as Jean-Claude puts it. And 
the sense in which that comes out of language is, is the following. If you're licensed to drive, some people with appropriate authority had to have made what Searle calls speech acts at some point in the past that created this piece of reality. And those speech acts are, this traces back to, in fact, Searle's uh, advisor, uh, John Austin, a philosopher, also a philosopher of language, um, who pointed out that, you know, things like uh, being licensed or, uh, you know, a ship being christened or uh, two people being married, these things come true by virtue of people announcing that they are now true, right? So I say, I now pronounce you man and wife. Um, you know, not just anyone can say that. I have to have the appropriate authority to say that, and this has to be an appropriate setting in which that can happen. But assuming all those conditions are there, uh, being licensed to drive is actually brought about by somebody having, you know, an, a certain authority and announcing that this is now true. And they'll do that, uh, you know, typically, well, they'll do that as we know it, being licensed to drive results in a something being written down somewhere for the public record and then you get given a little card and and so on. So, you, you know, you get the idea. These these The fact of being licensed to drive is brought about by language in that way. And it's important to understand that this doesn't mean that it's not real. I really am licensed to drive in New South Wales where I currently live. That's a it's an objective fact. It happens to be brought about by language in a sort of a, through a subjective kind of process. And the important thing is that, as you mentioned before, in relation to you know gravity, being licensed to drive is something that can be undone by words as well. So you know if we uh, if I if I commit a crime and you know I get caught drunk driving or something like that. Um, nobody can pronounce some words that stops me from being capable of driving a car. You know, that would be magic. But what they can do is stop me from being legally allowed to drive a car. And um, that what's important about that process is not only that it's done through language, but that also it's done through a general social agreement that we will all abide by that authority to, you know, the, whoever the person is who, made that decision because we're members of this society um you know we are required to uh act in accordance with that kind of claim so therefore you know i don't go drive now because i don't have my license anymore other otherwise i suffer certain consequences uh now these things can all be undone if for example you have a revolution and all the laws get changed and you know these things can be undone but uh once you are in a society, I think what's important to acknowledge is that even though much of social reality is sort of invented and created by us, it really does have quite a solid a solidity to it, right? I mean, it, it's often the statement that, that we have social reality is often misconstrued as saying something like, therefore, it's all sort of illusory. That would be wrong. It's not an illusory at all. Social reality is, you know, is everything to us. Um, it's just that it's very important to to recognize the distinction between social reality, which we ultimately control through language, and brute reality, which 
which we don't. And it is at the core of some of our confusions. You know, so an example would be something like, uh, well, there are many things that people want to argue are kind of socially constructed. Uh, and this is oftentimes where you get confusion. So an example would be something like sex versus gender. Uh, and people are often at cross purposes because some people are talking about, you know, brute reality, things to do with uh, measurable physical facts, while other people are talking about social reality, things to do with uh, social agreements around, you know, uh, what Searle would call status function declarations, that is declarations of, you know, who or what I am. Yeah, I was actually thinking of of Rousseau as you were you were saying that, so I'm glad you you brought him into this. Uh, you know, something as I was I was reading the book, something kind of horrifying, and this will connect back with with what you just said as well. Something somewhat horrifying came to my mind a little bit here in regard to our current state of communication. You say in the book that in order for social coordination to work to really function, we must be able to label things. And this, in, in my opinion, this is what I would call a very neo-modern move on your part. It's a kind of rejection of previous postmodern concepts, like uh, of eschewing labels, let's say. However, something that I think the pandemic uncovered a bit, or at least made more clear, is the problem that can occur when we label as an act of rhetoric. What you call framing in the book, I think. I spoke with my students about this a little bit, and even with um, Jonathan Haber as well on the podcast. The example that I used was when people refer to the drug ivermectin, they either refer to it as horse dewormer or Nobel Prize winning drug. Again, I think you refer to this as kind of framing. But my question for you is, what happens to social coordination when we not only cannot agree on the labels, but labeling itself becomes weaponized as simply a rhetorical act. Yeah, these are these are good examples, and I and it's a really important question. I think a couple of things are kind of important to register first, and that is that no matter what your sort of political or philosophical stance is, you just cannot get through life without constantly labeling. Labeling is not something that you can opt out of. You know, there is no uh, sort of, yeah, there's no way of escaping the effects of framing. And that's one of the things I, I try to emphasize in the book. And that is that just to talk, you have to use words obviously, and you cannot coordinate with others, you know, without doing so. So every time you pick a word to refer to whatever it is you, you, you want to refer to, you are making a choice as to how to frame it. Now, talking about a distinction between, you know, horse dewormer and Nobel Prize winning drug, uh, I like that example but in, it, it can be a little bit misleading because it suggests that, you know, this is an example of framing, but other things are not. It's, 
everything is framing. If I pick something up, I say, this is a coffee cup. That's framing. I could also say this is an object or this is a, a you know, a commodity or, you know, I could come up with a hundred other labels for the thing. Uh, it's just that there's nothing controversial in calling it a coffee cup. No one's going to question that. Uh, and, you know, the language is full of defaults in this respect and, and, and these choices don't really cause any harm and they don't uh, distract people, but there's still ways of framing the reality around us. Now, if you look at examples like horse dewormer and uh, Nobel Prize winning drug, that's a nice case. I don't actually know anything about the drug. I, I don't know if it won a Nobel Prize, perhaps it did. I, I have no idea, but let's assume it did. Um, the interesting thing about that example is that both of those descriptions are kind of true, right? Um, so, yeah, if it's used for deworming horses, then I can truthfully call it a horse dewormer. Mm -hmm. And if it, if it won a Nobel Prize, then I can truthfully say it's a Nobel Prize winning drug. So what's interesting about that case is that you cannot be, you cannot accuse either side of that equation of, of, of lying, of saying something that's false. What you can say, I think, is that they are using framing to invoke concepts or connotations or feelings uh, that are, you know, very obviously strategic. And I think this this illustrates the idea that I try to look at in the book, which is, you know, the idea that language is good for lawyers insofar as a lawyer's job is to direct their audience toward a certain interpretation of, of the matter. Uh, so if I'm going to say horse dewormer, then obviously... You know, I'm invoking this idea, these analogies like, are you a horse and do you require deworming? If not, why would you take this drug? Um, you know, all of these implications and inferences get introduced by certain kinds of frames. And in this case, it's clearly rhetorical and it's clearly kind of inflammatory in, in, in some sense. And I think this is another thing that it signals uh, or that the example kind of shows is that oftentimes these framings are not really about trying to convey true information. After all, as we just said, both things happen to be true about this stuff. Um, there's this other very important function, which all language always has all the time, and that is that it's not just making a claim about some object in the world or some state of affairs in the world. It's conveying something about me, the person who is sending this message, the person who is authoring this message in this particular way. So it's something I look at in the book um, with these ideas of, of the Russell conjugation and the Wittgenstein ruler. Um, these ideas are basically saying, I can choose different ways of describing the same state of affairs partly to try to skew how you think about this state of affairs. You know, we have the distinction between rioters and protesters. And uh, the second thing that it does, though, is it illustrates something about who I am and who I want to be seen to be and which group I'm a part of. So as with many things, if I 
refer to ivermectin as horse dewormer, you can infer from that a bunch of other things about the things I would also likely say. You can infer something about my political stance, just as if I said, you know, it's a Nobel Prize winning medicine. You could probably infer other things about my identity and other unrelated things I might say of a political nature. Uh, so, you know, this is another tension that comes up in the book is that essentially or primarily what language really is for is, is that second set of functions. It's about claiming a position in the world. It's about affiliating and aligning myself with others. It's about taking a perspective and really only secondarily or as a kind of a, a, a route to that, um, is it about actually referring to to objects and states of affairs accurately in the world? Yeah, I had, uh, thank you for that. It's an incredible answer. I I had my students research these two different framings of horse dewormer and Nobel Prize winning drugs. And when they came back factual, my simple question for them had to do with, okay, so what do we do when you have two people, let's say, lobbing facts at, at each other as arguments? Where does that end up? And, you know, they, they kind of, all, all of my classes ended up in the same place. They just kind of looked confused. But what I love about what you said in, in the book and just even now as well is perhaps it's more important even to think about what it says about the individual using the language and to maybe focus more on that. Additionally, I hadn't thought about the idea of all, all let's say, language to a degree is framing, like you said, with the, the mug or the cup. And so even a choice to use just straight ivermectin as the term is a, a framing as well. I just, something that I just keyed in on during this was the immense, I think, frustration of people in the middle who didn't want the extreme framings and instead kind of wanted a, a discussion. But now that with your answer, just, you know, the way you just said that even, I'm not sure that there is such a thing as a, um, what's the right phrase here? A, a good discussion as opposed to there are just discussions. Does that make sense? I think that there has to be, the possibility of a good discussion otherwise oh good oh thank thank goodness um, i was hoping you'd say that <laughs> yeah i mean I, I, you know one possibility might be uh suggested by what you were just saying which is you know this is a it's hopeless to expect that we could have progress in in discourse and you know everything's framing therefore nothing has any anchor to it and i don't agree with that i strongly disagree with that in fact uh and i think that the first step, however, is is firstly just to recognize the fact that when we talk, we are framing uh, everything. And that means that we have to take some responsibility and somehow be mindful of the choices that we're making. Now, your point about kind of saying ivermectin instead of saying horse dewormer or Nobel Prize winning drug, I think that's a you know, that's on the right track because it says, all right, look, I don't want to pick either of those two extremes. 
I want to pick something that is avoiding the implications of either of those extremes. And in fact, avoidance is one of the kind of basic motivations for, for how sort of neutral framings come about. I mean, when I say coffee cup, well, I'm, I just say that because that's the way we always say it. And I'm trying to avoid eliciting some kind of special interpretation. You know, if I, if I say, look at my new commodity rather than look at my new coffee cup, I mean, it might be a commodity or an object or whatever. Um, but that would just distract the conversation. Uh, so oftentimes what we, what we need to do is to find the framing that is least distracting uh, from our purpose. Then the next question becomes, well, what's the purpose? What are we actually trying to do here with language in this conversation? What am I trying to um, achieve? And that, I think, comes back to your conversation with your students. If they come back from their research and say, you know, this seems hopeless. Uh, how do we proceed? You know, um, people are, are just kind of picking um, these terrible, you know, everything is a kind of a bad option. I think that the question becomes what game are people playing when they're using language? So I, I sometimes like to invoke this idea of a language game, which is a term from, from the philosopher of language. Wittgenstein. And he just meant that, you know, when people talk, they have different kinds of goals and purposes. So for example, if you have a, a debate or a conversation or an argument between two people who are talking about ivermectin using different words for it, are they really trying to learn something new? Are they trying to arrive at a new truth? Are they trying to, or genuinely trying to convince the other person? Or are they just trying to voice, take a stance and illustrate who they are and where they stand in relation to the other person? And this comes back to what we were just talking about earlier. Are you trying to communicate information about the world or about yourself? And I think oftentimes it's the second thing. And if that's your purpose, then, you know, in that argument, which looks like people are at cross purposes, they're actually both achieving the goal they want to achieve, which is that they are, you know, uh, firmly illustrating who they are with respect to each other. That is that they are not affiliated with each other, that they don't agree with each other's stance and they walk away having achieved that. So in some perverse sense, they've succeeded because that, you know, their goal wasn't to arrive uh, at a point that's closer to the truth. If your goal is to arrive at a point that's closer to the truth, then, you know, you have to be playing a different kind of game. You have to, and one crucial part of that game that you have to be playing is that you've got to be not committed to any one particular framing. Now, that's really, I think, the key to progress is that you've got to be open to considering any possible framing uh, and actually, I've been recently rereading work by Karl Popper. He has this wonderful essay called The Myth of the Framework. And, you know, I think that this is very relevant here um, where he's saying, you know, if you're going to make progress towards truth, you have to have what he calls a clash of cultures, by which he means, you know, a clash of frameworks, um, or in this case, a clash of framings, that you really have to pit these framings against each other in a way that 
is intended to to challenge yourself, not to challenge the other person, but we know you're really thinking, you know, how can I challenge my own self? So real progress can, can occur by playing with different kinds of framings, but only if people do so in the spirit of, you know, wanting to change their own view, not wanting to change the other person's view. And that is the key distinction between the kind of lawyer's stance and the scientist's stance. That reminds me what you just said about um, Chantal Mouffe in the Paradox of Democracy, I think, talks about the importance of having dual frameworks, at least two or more, uh, in order, or, and that are antagonistic even, in order to help democracy, to keep democracy thriving, that they must be able to, to frame the, their discussions and, and in order to continually challenge themselves, not so much to defeat the other, but the goal is to challenge their, their own thinking in a lot of ways. I'd like to, I'd like to read you something from your book and then ask you to maybe um, elaborate a little bit on it here at the end, because I found it fascinating. And I think it connects too with what we were just talking about. You write, so here is one thing that language does to you. When you label the things you experience, that very act of labeling strips away information you might have registered about those things. The stripping away effects of categorization are not just felt on the receiving end of the path of communication. When we label the things we see, our own memories of what we've seen become depleted. Our choice of words doesn't just affect other people's minds. When we describe things in certain ways, we also mess with our own minds. How does our choice of words when we describe something mess with our own minds? Well, that quote is in relation to some studies that I talk about in the book that concern the effects of labeling certain kinds of perceptions that are difficult to put into words. So an example would be a, a shade of color. Uh, you can give an approximate label for it, but you, you know, it's very hard in language to capture an exact color shade just purely through words. Another example is a person's face. You've never seen a person's face before. Um, you see it and then you have to simply describe the face in words. It's hard to do. Uh, it's hard to communicate that. You know, the taste of wines, the various uh, kinds of difficult to describe experiences that have been studied by psychologists. And I talk in the book about some of these studies where, I'll, I'll give you an example. So the people in the experiment are shown a video of a bank robbery and you know the robbery unfolds and they see various things happening and they get a good view of the perpetrator's face and after they've seen this video then there are two groups of people so one group of people are asked then to describe the face as accurately as they can uh, and the other group are given some other tasks that, that they're not given an opportunity to describe the face that they saw in words. 
And later on, when they test these two groups, they show them a lineup of faces and they, they ask them, you know, which face was the person who committed the robbery that you saw in the video. It turns out that the people who did not get a chance to describe that face in words, they're better at remembering. They're better at accurately identifying the face in the lineup. Whereas the people who described the face in words were worse. And somehow this is what uh, researchers have referred to as a verbal overshadowing effect. It's been shown with the, these other domains like colors and, and, and tastes of wine and these things. The more you describe something in language, the more you sort of cartoonify or simplify or strip away the details of what you actually experienced when you saw or, or, or experienced that thing. And that makes sense because, you know, language is this highly simplifying system. You know, we have millions, we have infinite possible experiences, but we only have so many thousand words that we can try to kind of capture them in. And, you know, an inevitable part of that process is, is through what we call categorization, which means, you know, essentially throwing away information. So uh, coming back to the quote that you read out, I mean, the point is, if you just sort of ask people, what are the effects of language? Well, most people would expect you to say, well, you can use language to deceive other people and you can use language to kind of distract their attention away from this and towards that. Um, but I think this work that I've just talked about is really important because it shows that we do this to ourselves as well. Just by describing something that we've experienced, we're actually changing the experience. We're actually discarding some of the information that we would have otherwise held on to. We're sort of perpetrating these framing effects at some level on ourselves. And, you know, oftentimes that really doesn't, have much of a consequence, but sometimes it would. And I think, you know, these small effects accumulate over time and they help to account for the fact that our, our general understanding of experience, our general understanding of what we've seen, what we've done, what we've been through, what our world is like, you know, this is one of the ways in which language contributes to, to shaping that general understanding. That makes me actually want to to try this out a little bit next semester in the class and and maybe divide the class in half and and see you know uh, have them I guess witness you know something at the front of the class certainly not a robbery but something <laughs> and um and then have would it work you think to have half the class discuss with each other and the other half not just to maybe write down what they saw not that it would be perfect, but would it get to maybe the source of understanding how language or externalization of language in some ways strips away those categories? Well, sure. I mean, I think you can run that experiment in your class. It would be a fun thing to do. The crucial thing is not the difference between speaking about it and writing about it. The crucial thing is, is whether you use language to attempt to kind of capture or categorize the the thing that you're that you're looking at so another example of a study that was done about this was people looking through uh catalogs from a furniture store and basically you just see 
um, a endless kind of string of tables and lamps. And, you know, you, one group of people, they just have to press a button on the right if it's a table and a button on the left if it's a lamp. So they're categorizing these things. Um, and then the other group of people see all the same objects, but they just have to press a button on the right if they, if they like the object and a button on the left if they don't like it or something like that. Um, and so even on a simple task like that, the people who were sorting them and categorizing them as tables and lamps, which is a, you know, a linguistically instructed task, those people were worse later at, at, at remembering if they'd seen this exact table or this exact lamp before, you know, during the experiment. Whereas the ones who didn't actually sort the objects into categories, who just said whether they liked them or not. So it wasn't, it was a judgment, but it wasn't a judgment about the identity of these objects. Um, they were better at, at accurately remembering whether they'd seen that individual object. So I think you could run that task uh, or some task like that with your students and the key thing is to is to give one of them a task that that does not involve linguistically categorizing what they see in any way that's great yeah i'm definitely going to do that that's fantastic i i'd like to stop in chapter eight for a second here and i actually want to begin with um your quotation that be that opens up the chapter here you quote george orwell at the very beginning and and you you it's a fairly well-known quotation from uh, Politics and the English Language, his essay from 1946, I think. Uh, you write, political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable. Now, it's a very forceful quotation there. If you don't mind, I'd like to actually ask you a little bit about something else he mentions in that same essay, which I think connects with your work here, too. Orwell, in that same essay... He writes, let me get it just right. Uh, he says of the English language, it becomes ugly and inaccurate because our thoughts are foolish, but the slovenliness of our language makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. My question to you is, do you believe, after your study and all the work that you've done, do you believe Orwell is right about there being a direct link between the height of our language and the height of our thoughts? Yeah, that's a really interesting line that he takes there. And I think slovenliness, I'd like to better understand what he really meant by that. So for me, the word slovenly, you know, I associate that with, you know, the word slob, you know, sloppy and you know, sort of messy and disgusting and 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 wrong and and uh, not neat and all of those things. Um, it's certainly a highly evaluative term, which suggests you know some some lack of care. And so I sort of understand that, but the, the I think an obvious way in which people might interpret that is to say something like, "Oh, look, English is degraded and." Uh, something's wrong with it and you know if only we could bring it back to its great glory of some past time and you know there's a sort of it's a very common way of talking about language in this evaluative sort of way and i and i don't think that that's the problem uh you know i don't i don't really know what orwell exactly meant but my, for myself you know i don't think we should be focusing on the idea that you know oh if only our 
the faults in our language could be fixed like you know the young people today if only they knew how to talk properly i mean that's the direction that it often goes in and i don't think that's what this is really about i think that it's really about the problem of being uncritical about the categories that you inherit from your language so and that goes for any language doesn't matter what language you speak you will be given ultimately by your ancestors uh categories that you use in language that you just don't question you know you get given them you use words for objects and you don't overthink it you just learn them and you use them and we get on with life in some sense um and i think one of the big lessons of the work that i'm writing about in the book is that you can expand your knowledge by studying other languages you can break out of those habitual frames by learning other ways in which things can be spoken about and through that uh, you get insights about what's possible and about your own set of constraints so it also comes back to the remarks i was making earlier from Karl Popper, which was, you know, you have to challenge yourself with other ways of framing things, other ways of talking. And oftentimes those things will come not just from people who have different views from you, but also whole different systems for expression. So by that, I mean other human languages. Um, so one of the things that Orwell says in that chapter if i recall correctly is you know in in line with what you read out about uh, uh you know english being slovenly and that affecting us um he says something along the lines of you know you really need to figure out what you think before you put it into language um and i actually find that's a really interesting challenge because of you know for many of us Obviously, we think through language. It's very hard not to think in linguistic terms. But one way in which you can do that, uh, or one way in which you kind of op can operationalize or apply what, what he's suggesting, I think, is not to try to not think in language, but to not think in the same language, to use different forms of language or different languages to think through the same problems. Uh, and that comes back to our kind of, you know, horse dewormer, Nobel Prize winning drug example where what you're doing is not allowing yourself to be attracted to the simplest at hand way of referring to the thing, right? That would be a kind of slovenly uh, approach, right? I mean, in the sense of lazy, um, you know, the lazy thing to do is just grab the 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 at hand way of talking and then not think about because you know language goes very fast and as soon as we've said one word we've got to think well, what's our next word going to be you know it goes by incredibly quickly so this is one of the the the, the difficulties with language is that you know we we have to minimize effort otherwise we you know, we won't get through the day. We, we have to, we necessarily have to minimize effort, but we don't want to do that to, to the extent that Orwell warns against, you know, we don't want our language to be slovenly in, in the specific sense of being the product of pure, lazy decision-making, right? We just 
grab the word that we always would grab for that particular uh, reference. And as I have hinted a couple of times, it's fine to do that if you're just in the kitchen and you want someone to pass the salt, then you just do it the way it's always been done. But if we're talking about the kind of discourse that I think Orwell's talking about, you know, matters of uh, history, matters of politics, highly consequential issues, you know, you you can't be lazy. You can't just go with the flow that your language presents to you. You've got to be mindful and step back and think. And knowing more than one way of talking about the subject, including knowing more than one language for it, that will that will help a great deal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have one more main question for you here. And it actually connects with writing and, and thinking, you know, all, all, basically everything we've been talking about here. You did all this thinking and writing and, and even revising and rethinking. And at the end of this study, you came away with an incredible amount of focus on this one area. And something I'd like to ask you is, is at the end of this study, how did it in some ways inform or shape the way that you communicate with yourself and maybe externally? How did it change you in some ways? Well, I think that a lot of what I've been talking about today is, is really the answer to that question. So I think none of it's incompatible with how I've thought before, but this project has helped me to really sort of articulate that and understand much better kind of older work that I subscribed to in the past, but I don't think quite understood it as deeply as I do now. So um, an example would be the work by Benjamin Lee Wolf, who's, you know, a kind of 20th century linguist very well known for this idea that the language you speak can affect the way you think. And that's certainly quite compatible with what we've been discussing today. And I think that he is often, well, he's certainly very widely disparaged and widely misunderstood. Uh, and he's also kind of dismissed as a kind of mystic and, and, and all of this. Uh, but I think that if you actually go and read the work, you really find the seeds of a lot of what we've been talking about today. And and when I first read Worf's work on the language of Native American groups that he was looking at uh, in the first half of the 20th century, you know, when I first read that, I was I was I was convinced and I was excited by it, and it made me want to know more about linguistic diversity and sort of alternative ways in which you could construe reality. Um, but I think through this whole project, it's it's helped me to connect those ideas with the maybe more ethical and philosophical ideas that we've we've just been talking about, which really are about the firstly the kind of strategy, that you want to choose when you're trying to get closer to, to the truth and then the kind of ethics that you want to apply when you're thinking through, you know, how do I 
how do I talk? Um, so what, what I mean is, you know, in terms of strategy, I'm referring back to the kind of Popper's stance uh, of um, wanting to challenge yourself and, you know, not get, let's say, overcommitted to one certain kind of position in the world. Because if you want to come to the truth, it really doesn't matter, you know, your identity or what people think of you or all these kinds of things. What matters is, you know, what are, what are the facts and how can we best understand them? So you won't actually just strategically, you won't get closer to the truth unless you uh, play around with different ways of talking about it and challenge yourself with that. So I think that, you know, that's, that's part of what Wolf was really getting at. He was saying, look, come and learn different languages like Native American languages or languages very different from your own. Learn them, not just because they're fun and interesting, but because they actually give you a different way of viewing the world. He had this uh, kind of analogy. He said, imagine that you are only able to see a single color. You can only see blue. Well, you would never know it unless you had moments of being able to see other colors. And, uh, you know, that's what he said learning another language is like. You get in there and you see, oh, wow, there are these other colors here. I never realized that I wasn't seeing them. Uh, you know, so I think that there's a, there's a set of connections to be made there, which I've, you know, I've been able to make. And the, the second piece of this is the ethical side. And that is coming back to the kind of choices in framing, because there is never really a default framing or you're never really not framing things with words. That means you have a responsibility to think carefully about how you are framing things, to think about, you know, is this a case in which the framing doesn't matter, nothing really hangs on it, there are no consequences, if so, fine, and no proceed. Uh, but oftentimes in our work or in our teaching or in our in our discourse, that's not the case, right? It, it matters what we're drawing people's attention to, and it matters what we're suppressing. And our main tool for that is our choice of words. And, and so I think that you know, that's the other big piece here is to is to introduce that ethical imperative that you know when we use language we have a responsibility both to ourselves and to others for the framings that we choose. Nick, I think that's a, a perfect way to end the main discussion here. That's beautifully said. Absolutely. Uh, I'll be placing links to your works in the uh, episode descriptions, but are there any other places that people can go to learn more about you and about your works? Well, I have a website, nickenfield.org, and uh, my books and papers are accessible through there. So I guess that's the main kind of entry. Um, I write a range of different stuff, and some of it is highly technical academic work that's not necessarily uh, accessible to everyone. But uh, this book that's just out and the 2017 book, How We Talk, I think uh, hopefully good places for general readers to start and um you know you might find other links there and of course people are always welcome to just get in touch with me directly 
Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I really enjoyed the book and, and I have no doubt that our listeners will as well. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Nick Enfield. Check out his works using the links that I've provided in the episode description. And make sure to hit the subscribe slash follow button, leave a kind comment or rating where applicable, and share an episode with a friend. But even if you do none of those things, know that I'm incredibly grateful for your spending some time with us today. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on neutral ground. And have a great day. <laughs>